Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Unknown Friends podcast. Today, you're listening to Season 3, Episode 20, and I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions. Thank you for joining me this week for Part 2 of our three-part discussion of the Oristia Trilogy by the Greek playwright Aeschylus. Last time, I not only introduced this trilogy, but also explored some of the history of ancient Greek plays to give some context for our discussion. So if you have not yet listened to episode 19, I recommend you go back and give that a listen before continuing with this week's episode. Today we're moving forward, and we will be discussing the second play in this dramatic trilogy. The play is titled The Libation Bearers, and in it we meet the rest of the family of King Agamemnon, the man who was killed by his wife Clytemnestra in the first play. If you remember, Agamemnon had earlier um, sacrificed one of his daughters to appease the goddess Artemis, and Clytemnestra had never forgiven him for this. And on top of that, while Agamemnon was away from home fighting in the Trojan War, Clytemnestra had been having an affair. And so when he did come home, she and her lover Aegisthus had laid their plans to kill Agamemnon, um, both for reasons of ambition and selfishness, and also out of a desire for revenge. Actually, Aegisthus had his own reason to seek vengeance, because his father had been cruelly treated by Agamemnon's father years before. So vengeance was largely the motive for Agamemnon's murder, and as we'll see today, vengeance is one of the central issues of the whole Oresteia trilogy. Is vengeance moral? Uh, can it achieve justice? And are there other claims that should have a greater or lesser hold on us than the claims of a wronged loved one? These are all questions Aeschylus is exploring in this trilogy. So the Libation Bearers picks up shortly after the first play, the Agamemnon, left off. With the king dead, Clytemnestra and Aegisthus take over Argos and rule in his stead. Now a daughter of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, named Electra, lives with them, and we meet her at the very beginning of this play. She thinks it was horrible that her mother killed her father. Um, she is grieving his death. And we meet her actually bringing a libation, or an offering, to the gods at her father's grave. She is pious, um, according to the Greek understanding of piety, and she prays to the gods that her mother and Aegisthus may receive justice, that her father's death may be avenged. She also prays that her brother Orestes might return to Argos from exile. Now, we met um, neither Electra nor Orestes in the first play, but Orestes is the namesake, of course, of this trilogy, the Oresteia, and we learn now that he had been forced to leave his home years before and has been kept in exile ever since. And Electra, knowing that Orestes would feel the same way that she does about their father's murder, desperately wishes that he could return home and support her and who knows, maybe take vengeance on the murderers. So long story short, she lifts this prayer, 
and makes this offering. And shortly afterwards, she discovers that Orestes has returned from exile in secret, and that he, earlier this same night, had also come to Agamemnon's grave to pray and bring an offering. So there is a reunion between these two siblings. Um, Orestes and Electra meet, and Orestes explains to his sister that he has actually come on a mission. The god Apollo has commanded him to return to Argos and avenge his father's death by killing his mother Clytemnestra and her accomplice Aegisthus. This is supposed to achieve justice and ultimately wipe out the stain of blood that's on their household. Um, the family is cursed. Remember the curse of Atreus that we talked about last time? And Orestes hopes that by following Apollo's orders and punishing his father's killers, he can bring the cycle of violence to an end in his family. So Orestes has a simple plan. He is going to disguise himself as a traveler and ask for shelter at the palace. And once he gets inside, he will kill the murderers as quickly as he can. And that's exactly what he does. He gets admitted into the palace, and with some help, he arranges for Aegisthus to meet him alone. And so, of course, he then takes the opportunity and immediately kills him. But then he has to face his mother, and that's harder. His mission is to kill her in retribution for her murder of Agamemnon. And since he was actually commanded to do this by the god Apollo, he is sure that it's right, um, that it's an act of justice. But he still recoils, understandably, from killing his mother in cold blood. Um, and she, unsurprisingly, uses this same reasoning as she begs for her life. Um, she pleads to him to spare her since she's his mother. But ultimately, he stays true to his mission, and he does take her life. So Aegisthus and Clytemnestra lie dead, and the hope is that this punishment will balance the scales, so to speak. It will put an end to the generations of bloodshed. Now, if Orestes had acted out of selfish motivations, if he had cruelly and without any qualms murdered his mother, it might be different. But he acted only out of obedience to the gods, and out of love for his father and a desire to bring justice to his father's killers. However, as soon as he has done the deed, it quickly becomes clear that all is not yet right. Orestes seems to be feeling the guilt of his actions, um, and he you know, repeats to himself his righteous reasons for what he's done, but it doesn't seem to help. And he starts getting almost frantic, and he says he will have to go back into exile and seek refuge from Apollo in order to avoid the consequences for what he's done. And then, all of a sudden, he freaks out. He screams in horror and says he can see the Furies, the goddesses of vengeance, approaching him, though no one else in the play sees them. And he's convinced that they are going to hunt him down to punish him for killing Clytemnestra. And the Furies really are terrifying. They have um, snakes for hair, and they are the daughters of the goddess of night. Um, and Orestes calls them the hounds of his mother's hate. So Orestes runs away in terror and hopes to find some kind of protection from Apollo. 
but there's no guarantee that even Apollo can keep him safe from these goddesses of vengeance. And that is where the second play ends. Another uh, dark conclusion, which shouldn't surprise us since these plays are tragedies. But more is coming in the third play called The Eumenides, and in that drama there will actually be some closure, uh, some justice, and even some hope for the future. In the meantime, though, uh, this second play of the trilogy has really complicated the ideas of vengeance and justice that Aeschylus is concerned with. The revenge and murder that took place in the first play was pretty clearly evil. I mean, yes, Agamemnon was not a great guy. Um, I mean, he had made a human sacrifice of his daughter. But still, Aeschylus clearly portrays Clytemnestra and Aegisthus as immoral in their motives and their means for getting vengeance on Agamemnon. They have reasons to kill him other than just a desire for justice. And they feel absolutely no remorse when they do take his life. Clytemnestra glories in it, in fact. Orestes, on the other hand, really does seem to be uh, purely motivated, if, if you can ever say that someone has a pure motivation for murdering someone. Um, in this ancient world, there was no justice system. Um, there weren't reliable people or institutions that you could appeal to if your father was brutally murdered. Uh, it was considered your duty to bring justice on the murderer yourself. And so in that worldview, you know, Orestes actually has a moral responsibility to avenge his father's death. And that is his sole motive. And moreover, he struggles to go through with it when it comes to killing his own mother. He hesitates out of uh, familial love for her. Um, in a way that she did not hesitate when it came to killing her husband. So Orestes is clearly pictured as Clytemnestra's moral superior. This act of violence in the libation bearers should not be judged uh, the same way that the act of violence in the Agamemnon should be judged. All that said, uh, we still have a huge problem, because however you evaluate it, the fact still remains that a son murdered his mother in cold blood. That cannot be right, can it? Um, the Furies certainly have a problem with it. Their role as goddesses is to avenge the murder of kin. Now, you might ask, why do they have a problem with Orestes killing, but not Clytemnestra's? Well, technically their priority is people who kill uh, blood-related family members. Uh, Clytemnestra obviously wasn't related by blood to her husband, so that murder did not upset the Furies the way that a son killing his father upset them. So at the end of the play, we are still left with a big problem. Um, in fact, I'd say a bigger problem than the one we were left with at the end of the first play. There, we just had this horrible murder by an unflinching killer, and it was pretty clear that it did not accomplish justice. It, it did nothing but perpetuate the curse of the House of Atreus um, and the cycle of death that has haunted the family for generations. Nothing good came out of the first play. 
in the libation bearers, we at first were offered some hope. Even the title, by the way, is referring to Electra and her attendants who were bringing offerings to the gods. The title highlights the piety of Electra and of her brother Orestes. They are not uh, ambitious. They are not vindictive the way their mother is. Rather, uh, they acknowledge their duty to obey the gods and to honor their parents. So in the first play, we had impious people trying to fix the problems of the house of Atreus, which obviously wasn't going to work. Here in the second play, we have pious people trying to fix the problems of the house of Atreus. But when their efforts don't succeed, then we should be really worried. Orestes was our hope. He was just obeying the god Apollo, and yet now he has incurred the wrath of some other deities, the Furies. He can't win for losing. And what this should tell us is that there is a problem in this system, or the worldview. If you have one god who commands matricide, and another god who punishes you for matricide, something is deeply wrong. And that's how we should feel at the end of the libation bearers. Something has to change. And that feeling will lead us into the third play, the Eumenides, in which Aeschylus will do his best to answer our questions and offer a solution to the deep inconsistency that we find in this system of so-called justice and morality. So that is a quick overview of the libation bearers. This play is pretty short, uh, and so today's episode is on the short side as well. But I hope you come back next time for our discussion of the third play in the trilogy, because Aeschylus uh, creates a really fascinating scenario there as he works to bring justice to the mess that we've witnessed in the first two plays. And the solution he ultimately offers really demonstrates a huge step forward in ancient thinking. And so the Eumenides is intriguing both from a literary standpoint and from a historical one. And of course, for anyone generally interested in worldviews as well, ancient philosophy and theology. So that discussion will be coming up in two weeks on October 12th. And in the meantime, just a reminder for patrons... You will be seeing your monthly bonus book review come up on your Patreon podcast feed next week. And I'm looking forward to the discussion I will be sharing with you then. So be sure to watch for that episode. As always, thanks so much for listening today. And if you haven't already, remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave a quick review if you can. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can always learn more about me and the plays that I write for churches and schools at my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.